Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. This is episode number two in our series of three with our friends at Rotogeek. And back to join us is David Payne. Hi, David. Welcome back. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me again. Good. No problem. So we're going to continue our conversation on automating employee scheduling, and we're going to focus on some of the benefits. We touched on a few in, in episode one, but we're really going to start to get into some of the detail now, and then we're going to hit the the golden question at the end around, can you really automate your entire end-to-end employee scheduling process so i know we've got we've got some views maybe some of the same maybe some differently on that but we'll, we'll hit that one at the end before we um set up episode three we know why people are moving towards more automated of component parts of their scheduling process just let's talk about some of the benefits that that can bring then so i i see lots of business cases which say people are going to save x y hours by location by week is that something you see at rotogeek is that true or actually were they ever spending that time in in the first place doing it so it's kind of a a false economy and the savings are somewhere else yeah i think this is a this is a useful kind of distinction isn't it to get started with because i guess very many things in life when we automate them um you are you get the you're trying to get the same result as you got previously with your manual or whatever method uh, and the benefit of the automation is that a person doesn't have to do it anymore so the time saved in the task um and i guess what we are saying about scheduling is that um that's that's not really what we're achieving here obviously i guess you do save some time um uh you know building a rotor is something uh, in you know in pre digital automated scheduling days something a manager is doing you know potentially on a piece of paper or in excel they're doing it kind of every week or every month uh, and it takes some of their time to do for many of them it's not a task that they particularly enjoy or see as kind of critical to their role or the skills that they were hired for or what they love doing um, and it takes up some of their time and actually quite often time outside of um, outside of their sort of normal working or paid hours uh, and, and I guess yes through efficient automation of that process you do give them that time back that's true but a much more important lever for the business who, who goes through it is you're going to get a different rotor when you automate it or at least or at least you can do uh, I guess you could you could not um, you could deliberately constrain it in a way that that didn't but most likely you're going to get a different kind of schedule you're going to be using your store frontline employees in a different way to serve your customers differently um, which is going to mean that they're going to get shifts that are more suited to when they're really needed when you're really forecasting customers to walk in the store and need that service or that task Um, uh, and it also gives the opportunity to to do better for those employees as well quite apart from the sort of indirect benefit they'll get from not being feast and famine at work because of the first lever anyway um, but also you can be much fairer you can really make sure that you're not going to have uh, you know working time uh, breaches with not enough rest between a closing and an opening uh, the sorts of you know a mistake that's very easy to make when you're making a manual rotor and you've got lots of jigsaw pieces moving and you can start to accommodate more things you know sort of obviously flexi time patterns but much softer preferences employees might have about which days or times of day they don't work or which particular slot they would quite like to not work this week but you know don't ideally want to have to takers annual leave and that sort of thing so you're going to get a different rotor and we often say i guess just in terms of ballpark quantifying the kind of the relative size of those things we would say you know time spent on rotor building is something like a quarter to a half a percent of your total store hours of the you know the manager's time goes into that process and it's true you'll get quite a lot of that back Uh, maybe we'll talk in a minute about kind of what that what that really means getting time back Um, but more importantly you'll be using five or 10 maybe percent uh, store team hours better, you know, where they're really needed, serving customers, shortening queues, 
improving basket sizes, keeping the store standards higher, um, and ultimately making them happier as well. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And let's let's just pick up on one of those points. So you talked a number of times there around potentially you're going to end up with a different rotor. So that plays to some of the wider things in implementing workforce management around, although you're implementing tech, it's a very big change program as well so change management is important for me there's that piece and i don't know if you agree or disagree be interesting to hear your thoughts if the rotor changes you don't necessarily have to do some big piece of revolution to get everybody to move to that from x day you could do that that's fine but actually people may migrate to those new shifts over time as people leave as people decide they want to rework their hours as patterns change so from a colleague's point of view it's not this big throwing everything up all my working hours have changed and they're going to be different every week which i think is some of their concerns and and fears understandably kind of gradually taking hold of the roi the return on investment from having the right people where the customers are and the demand is does that make sense yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Uh, it's in, yeah, I think it's interesting to sort of to put it like that. I guess you, I guess you're right. There's um, so maybe there's two two bits. One, I sort, I guess I briefly mentioned uh, as a sort of throwaway comment in what I was saying before that you know you don't, I guess you don't have to have a different rotor. You could constrain it in a way that made you actually have the same one, and then all you've saved is the manager time. And, and that's true. I guess that's true in our tool. Uh, I imagine it's sort of uh, degrees of it would be would be common in this kind of tool. Is you know, I'm, I guess I'm particularly thinking about colleague availability. So the times of week that they don't work. Uh, which could arrangement, you know, part of their contract, some flexi time arrangement uh, that you definitely, definitely as a business want to keep honoring long term. Uh, or it could be that that's just custom and practice or some sort of uh, biased arrangement by the by the by the manager with a, uh, you know, a team member that he really likes or something like that. So you can, you know, either way, I guess you can, we can enable you to sort of keep those, keep those available hours for an employee. So they only work in the slots of the week that, that they always have and that they want to. And I guess, again, in our tool, you could constrain it in other ways too. You can sort of say minimum shift length is this, maximum shift length is that. Um, you know, these are the <clears throat> tasks that it's legitimate to switch between. This is the, you know, you can only have your two rest days a week if they're sort of adjacent, like a weekend uh, and that kind of thing. There's lots of, lots of um, rules that you can set, which may reflect the rotors that you had before and actually give people very similar rotors to what they had and i guess you can mix and match as well some people could stay on very fixed very fixed patterns while everybody else was a bit more flexible uh, maybe the newer team members or the part-timers who you've added more recently some something like you know use them where you really need them uh, that kind of thing so it's so obviously there is the option in a tool like ours really limit that change so that i guess what you had in mind is to sort of to to step towards a more dramatic change but to have you know really have control of how much change you're putting through at any one time and potentially not not do very much at the beginning but but the other piece here i guess is that it's it's supposed to be win-win so i guess what we often find um is that lots of these kind of fixed shift arrangements and other ways in which employees kind of uh, you might it might come across as rigidity in the rotor and something that's going to stop you from being maximally efficient. You know, these are legacy arrangements that maybe the employees' needs have changed, but they've never sort of thought to raise it, and the managers never thought to raise it, and both sides have assumed the other wants it that way. You know, it's it just it's just the easiest way to keep track of the rotor from week to week, but it's not actually something that you really care about. And being able to specify from one week to the next some different slots that you actually want. You know, you prefer not to work this particular week, that sort of thing. So w- what we've tended to find is that there's, you know, there's quite a lot of assumption and legacy arrangement that goes into those things. And actually using the tool in a sort of self-service two-way kind of way, um, even if it results in change, it's change that employees often wanted and just never had a way to ask for before. And I suppose a good exercise for businesses to understand variances out there to sure that they're conforming and compliant and also 
just kind of sweep up all the, the legacy issues that exist at a local level because they're not good for large organizations especially when we're seeing you know working time directive minimum working hours min- people dropping below national living wage because hours weren't recorded correctly all those things that hit the press aren't aren't good for brand so mm. it gives them the confidence that it's in a system the data's there if they need it they can pull it whereas if it was local i assume it would be some gargantuan effort to prove to the authorities you've got good rigor around it yeah, great point. I guess that I guess that is right, isn't it? The probably more of an expectation nowadays uh, of having that transparency and visibility, and that as a corporate, you'd be able to manage those things kind of consistently. And I think employees expect it too. You know, very strange for an employee when they sort of they're used to, I don't know, one particular break pattern or you know some other the shifts that are given in their usual store, and then they go and work a shift in another store as cover or something, and everything's completely different. Um, quite destabilizing for employees and can lead to a lot of. Um, resentment um, on top of, you know, even within a single, I guess there are lots of cases of, you know, favoritism of one kind or another, either accidental, I guess, kind of um, bias by a manager because because they didn't have time to think about it any more deeply, or in some cases, um, probably innocently intended in a lot of them as well. You know, I'm thinking the first people you call when you need cover, um, and, you know, depending on the store environment, that could be kind of considered a benefit because you're getting extra paid hours. You're, you know, people want the overtime and aren't you lucky that you get it? Or in, and in some stores, it will be a real burden uh, on staff to be constantly being asked if they'll help out cover somebody's sickness. Um, but whichever it is, managers will have people that they go to because they know that they'll, they'll pick up or they owe them favours or whatever it may be and that's that's a sort of it gets the store run gets the customers served but it's not fair to employees and i think yes having more visibility of that stuff and more standardization across the estate uh, and not having it limited uh, politics or by the skill of any one manager um, is a real sort of real benefit to the business and something that is increasingly expected yeah and there must be big upsides potentially for customers as well if you get it right so they i now go into the shop and there's people there to help me serve me through the till give me advice on the when i shop so that customer experience must come through in things like net promoter score for the for those that measure customer experience or top box score so you, you see kind of those intangible or well not intangible those customer metrics Yes. And I think, I guess, obviously, the key one here is about peak times, you know, where uh, if you've, with the budget that you've got to make your rotor for your store, um, if you're not doing it optimally, it's probably the peaks that are suffering. And it's, and I guess it's not just the sort of the random error of, if I, you know, being difficult to, to do the jigsaw, but it's also, you know, actually trying to staff up with, with, with long shifts and shifts starting on the hour and the same shifts every week, trying to staff up to a peak of trade, which might be five or 10 times as busy as your quietest hour is, uh, it's quite, it's quite a difficult sort of problem to solve. Um, and that's the time when customers will feel that pinch the most. They'll see empty shelves. They'll have to wait in line. Uh, they won't be able to get the advice that they need and i guess yes do it just achieving that efficiency of course any store can always kind of improve their staffing at peak time but the easy you know the sort of the the prima facie way to do it is just throw money at it and obviously most businesses can't afford to do that and don't want to do that i guess using a tool which unlocks five or ten percent efficiency in the way that the hours are used means you can plow that back into you know 10 or 20 percent more hours at those peak times and come uh, and improve the, the level of service that your customers will see and ultimately the, the basket sizes and the uh, and the feedback and the mps and everything else so you, the metrics should come back in sales so you've got um in terms of my staffing levels with the the right people as best i can be when i'm busiest so therefore i'm maximizing the opportunity and then the other things could slot in in and around that so that sounds like a good journey and a journey we know clearly between us lots of 
people are on i'm sure there's some that are still thinking about that journey and hopefully we've kind of sparked some thought process to explore that further the elephant in the room then is (laughs) the one we're going to talk about next before we set up uh, episode three can you or will you ever be able to let's stick with retail a retail environment put lots of information in a system people working patterns skills preferences sales data delivery data press a button produce a schedule put it on a wall and everybody work it go on you can you can go first <laughs> yeah shall we both so i mean you know i, I guess I, I we do what we do at road to geek because we think we think yes i mean i guess maybe maybe we just need to make sure we position the question correctly you say elephant in the room as if it, like, like it might be a sort of you know it's a threat to the entire concept of automated scheduling if you can't do that and i, I guess that's not what we think i mean we've never done an implementation of of our tool where that's ultimately what the customer chose to do where they decided to completely disintermediate all store level management maybe all human beings in the organization altogether and just um you know at some central way yes the sort of the button was pushed and no no visual review of the rotor before it was published no manual edits um no uh, no local sort of governance at all so we've never seen that implementation and i don't think that sort of particularly limits the uh, the value that you can get out of the tool or the sort of the purpose of going on the journey um uh, or even that sort of fully automating definitely has to be you know in your end state in your kind of plan um to bother starting on the journey so i i guess i just want to make sure i guess that it's not we're not thinking about it that way but yeah i mean theoretically yes we we i guess i think we think that um that you could do this and um i guess we we all we put tools in 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 the sort of the interface for for using the auto scheduler as we call that element of our tool um we put we put tools in the kind of interface when you trigger that run it will sort of talk you through it will give you feedback around actually some of the input data you've given us about this person means they're not going to get their contract out they're not available at the times that the work that they're skilled to do is needed um so you might need to change an input for example um so we give that little feedback you know we once a schedule comes back we immediately feedback to the manager what the kind of the fit to demand percentage is so effectively how 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 many hours are not not in exactly where they would like to be and of course even our auto scheduler doesn't get 0% error or 100% fit to demand on this because there are you know there are just demands volatile uh the shifts people can work you, know, you can't call people in for a 15 minute shift so you can't perfectly staff every every minute of demand but we give feedback about what that percentage is and if you make manual edits you'll see that percentage generally go down um that's the point of having sort of optimized it in the first place uh and that sort of thing so we're sort of i guess we're trying to educate our users gently that they don't need to manually edit or particularly visually review puts of something like an auto schedule uh, to approve it uh, and ultimately if that if that you know, if people came to accept that, and um, and we feel confident that we're consuming all of the right input data. I mean, you mentioned some good, some good, some good things there. Some of which are easier to get at in the typical business than others. But assuming that you can, then yes, I guess we'd be big believers that that is possible, but not necessary. What do you? What, let's hear your view. So, I think anything's possible with the right will <laughs> um, and the right data. So, good data in, good data out gives you a, a better result. I think it's really tricky to replace local knowledge of mm. of stores. So, again, data tells you one view of the world. Clearly, local knowledge potentially adds color to that. So, I'm not saying it's different. I think it just adds the the kind of cherry on the cake. So, I think my my view is yes, it's possible theoretically or practically. The solutions can get you eighty five, ninety percent of the way. 
So with good data, with good insight, with accurate information on, and that, that will get better all the time, it should mean there's less intervention. So what, why change something for the sake of changing it? And, you know, you've talked there about most, most edits will decrease a, a scheduling efficiency or accuracy score. So we're making changes which actually make it worse which then to me comes back to, so why are you making the changes? Is it because you've got inaccurate data around colleagues? So fix the data at source and understand why you keep making the same change. So for me, I think the utopia would be good data in, we spit out a result, that result's reviewed, and then any changes are scrutinized to understand why. So you fix the problem at source rather than recreating it. And there's a small tolerance for kind of lo- localisms, let's say, that that get in the way. So, you know, I don't know, I run a store that's next to a football ground and every other Saturday nobody can park because they all park there to watch the game. It's difficult to pick that up in data, right? Yes, I think that's right. And probably that is the, a good place for us to sort of point this is to sort of say, what sorts of things are we aware of um, that it is hard to capture? Because as you say, kind of, you know, assuming you can, if you can create the list of those things, let's just work through it until we've got what we need uh, or find new ways to capture them. As you say, it's obviously better because of the way optimization works. You know, it's a complex jigsaw. Actually, it's always it's always going to be a compromise to have to try and sort of fix something after the fact. You'd much rather capture it before and factor it in when you're when you're juggling all of the pieces, uh, you're going to get a much better result doing it that way. So there's quite a big incentive to, to do this and to do it well. But you're right. I mean, some of the things that I guess we don't, let's say, handle as features in the RotoGeek solution yet, but we know that we'd like to because they're part of this gap, is things like who works well with who. So kind of like shop um, behaviors. But you want to implement that in a way that doesn't disadvantage people, you know, give people who are I don't know, inexperienced at uh, uh, selling to customers, you know, uh, only quiet times to work in or you know no, no good role models to learn from and that sort of stuff you want to kind of get the right balance of optimal customer service in the moment but also optimal team development so there is quite a lot it's, it's trickier than it sounds i guess more to consider than you might think um and there are going to be some local i guess demand features that it's difficult to capture i guess again we're quite conscious that today the sort of the road to geek kind of forecasting model is quite statistical statistically based so we're extrapolating a lot of trends from history but obviously there could be things that the business knows about that are coming up in the future that you could never know from history um like some uh i don't know some unusual public holiday some unusual promotional event some unusual competitor activity like you know store closing for repurbs down the street or something like that so and those are things that are quite difficult to capture uh, at least in the models that we that we use because they're so statistically driven but because of that it's a big you know it's a big part of our roadmap to to start trying to accommodate things like that more so that you have fewer and fewer of these things that uh where ultimately what we've predicted and what we said would be best um isn't using the full full gamut of the knowledge that's available um and I guess, and I guess you do similar things with your rethink tools, right? I mean, when you sort of with the labor modeling that you guys do, yeah, it's all based on views of the past or predictions of the future. And you can argue that the past is maybe self-limiting because it's only as good as what you've done, not what you could have done. And mm. the, a forecast is a view into the future that will be slightly wrong or or very right. Um, so diff- difficult to predict. And again, I think. The one thing in all of this is the person who administers a schedule at a, at a store level. For me, it's about empowering them with better data to make better decisions, replacing them. My schedule accuracy is good. The data that goes in is good. I have less decisions to make in my scheduling process before it goes 
out to the apps or on the wall. I think they're an integral part of that process. As soon as you take them out of that process, I think that's when you get the fight of, I know better because of local knowledge. Yes, I think, I mean, one through the through the results and through uh, the correct kind of engagement, you definitely don't want a situation where people, where you're sort of disintermediating, disintermediating people kind of not just faster than you ought from the results perspective, but also you're not winning that trust and you do end up with a, a sort of essentially poor adoption or other other challenges. Um, so that's that's very important. I totally agree. And yes, I guess we've taken, a, I said we've sort of, we've never done an implementation where we do sort of get to or even push for this kind of full automation uh, i guess because because of my love of the math, the math challenge in it i guess personally i'm very excited about the idea that one one day we would be able to move in that direction but you're absolutely right the, the tool that we've built and the way that we deploy it today absolutely cap, uh, counts managers in in that decision and it is absolutely all about making sure they've got uh, tools that will do automated elements for them but the, the sort of the visualizations and the dashboards and everything else that they have in the tool are to help them feel involved in those decisions and empower them to to kind of to take it forward in the right way from there so that time will tell although if, we'd, <laughs> if, if we recorded this 10 years ago and said that we'd have one of the largest distributors of goods in the world amazon going into shops and those shops didn't have people in and you could just walk out with things and it charges your card people would have probably laughed at us so you know ne- never say never in a world right, of right. you know we, we've just gone through 18 months of unpredictable pandemic that was on nobody's radar, I suspect. So um, never say never. But yeah, it, it will be interesting how it evolves and how close to that we actually get and which organizations are prepared to push it harder and faster to increase customer facing time, reduce cost, um, make the business more profitable, all those kind of things that come with it that we've discussed. So yeah, one to watch, I feel, one to watch. <laughs> Definitely. And and on that note, in terms of uh, benefits that we've talked about, we're going to step into episode three. Kind of, I think what the plan is, is we'll talk about pretty much where do you start? So what's a typical case study of, of your customers? Where do they start the journey? What things do they think about? How do they potentially turn bits of the solution on and off? And, and then where, what does that drive in terms of circling back around to some of the things we've discussed? So we won't necessarily go into specific uh, retailer names because that's not fair, but <laughs> looking forward for you to give us an overview of the Road to Geek journey from where do you start with workforce management and then how that transpires into people using the solution. Brilliant. So we'll pause there and we'll be back with episode three, looking at where do you start? Thanks, David. Thanks, Simon.